Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing today with our series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, with a message entitled, The Perseverance of Hope. So turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Perseverance is, well, when you truly see it in someone, well, it's, it's a most remarkable thing. It means to never quit, or as Winston Churchill once told a group of elementary students, never, never, never give up. Actually, I don't know how often he repeated the word never, but it was a lot. Never accept defeat. No matter how often you've been defeated in the past, just keep fighting and don't ever stop. Biblical Christians have a word for that. We call it perseverance. In the early 1790s, after suffering another defeat in his, what was then only a 10-year battle to end the slave trade and the practice of slavery in England, a tired and dispirited member of the British Parliament, William Wilberforce, went home and he opened his Bible to read. A small piece of paper, a paper he had long forgotten, fell out onto the floor and he stooped to pick it up. Ah, yeah. It was a letter that had been placed in his Bible some time before. It was a letter written to him by none other than the great evangelist, John Wesley, just shortly before Wesley's death. Among other things, that letter said, and I quote, Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? And yes, it did take yet another 10 years more, suffering horrible criticism and betrayal, until finally came that amazing day the passage of the Slave Trade Act of 1807. That act made the slave trade illegal. Perseverance with the knowledge that God is for us allows all God's people to have courage and to have it with the assurance that in the end, Christ will reign supreme and every power of hell and of evil will be defeated. I've begun a study in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Probably this is the second book of the 13 books that the apostle Paul wrote, those found in our Bible. We've already seen in the beginning of our study that Paul had come to the Greek city of Thessalonica and that he encountered a blizzard of opposition so that in very short order, his presence inspired a riot in the city. His his life was in immediate danger and the political leaders of the city escorted him out of town with the understanding that they certainly never wanted to see him again. The door of that city was closed. We also learned that after that, Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how a harassed and deeply persecuted church was doing in those distressing times. And that becomes the theme of our study. Our study is about steadfastness in distressing times, but we've also said that the very ground on which the early church was planted and grew was the ground of what we shall call hostile soil. The Christian faith is meant for difficult times, and I say this because as I record this now, we are, as a country, in difficult times. Either in terms of our physical health or the future of our economy, all have been affected by the current crisis. And even though we're not facing persecution, Christians do have something to say in difficult times. Okay, I think we're ready to start our reading of the book. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Now, if you've read Paul's letters, you're going to recognize that each one of them has very similar beginnings. That's because in many ways, his letters are the same as other letters in the ancient world. 
You know, first, Paul begins by identifying himself along with his two colleagues. And by the way, it is clear that this letter is written by Paul alone and not all three. But Silvanus, well, by the way, that's Silas. That's Paul's chief partner in his missionary enterprise. And Timothy, well, that's the young man Paul has been sending to the Thessalonian Christians after, you know, Paul had become a persona non grata in the city. Now, each of these three men had a strong vested interest in what was happening among the Christians in Thessalonica. And so Paul says, what I'm writing you is just as important to Silvanus and Timothy as it is to me. That's why I mentioned them at the beginning. So next, as was customary, Paul then mentions the people who are receiving the letter. It's to the church of the Thessalonians. And and I know that in our terms, the word church, well, that's always a Christian word. But in the ancient world, the word church, or in the Greek, ekklesia, well, that was simply a word that was used to describe any assembly of people. And that's why Paul was so quick to add to the assembly in Thessalonica, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this assembly in Thessalonica is different from every other gathering of people. Yeah, of course. The city of Thessalonica was full of temples, and the city had plenty of other assemblies of peoples, and the city boasted so many civic activities, but there were any number of assemblies. But says Paul, your assembly? Well, it's unlike every other human assembly. Yours is God's assembly. Yours is the assembly of the Son of God who became human flesh. Yours is the only assembly that proclaims salvation to a lost and dying and sinful world. So in the opening lines of the book, Paul wants to make sure that the recipients of the letter don't forget their identity. Think of who you are and think of what you have received. And then as Paul ends his introduction to the letter, he adds a very distinctly Christian blessing. Grace, he says, in peace. Grace, well, that's the story of the gospel. Grace is something we've received from God. We haven't earned it. It's how you became God's assembly. It was not something you'd earned. It was something that in love God has given you through his son. And peace, well, peace always follows grace. Are you surprised here that that Paul blesses this church with peace? You know, that's because as we've already seen in, in our introduction to the letter, the believers in Thessalonica were in trouble. The city thought of them as troublemakers. They were in distress. And yet, says Paul, peace be upon you. But of course, Paul doesn't mean peace in terms of freedom from trouble. Jesus himself had said that he doesn't give us the kind of peace the world gives us. Paul meant that our hearts are quieted with a sure knowledge that because of grace, our God is with us. We don't need to fear the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. We have the sure knowledge that our future is in the hands of a loving God who causes all things to work together for his glory. And here, before we go any further, would you please, my dear Christian friend, reflect on those realities. What do you prize more than anything else? If you prize good health, if it's living in prosperous times, if it's hope that you're going to be taken care of in this world, then when we live in times of distress, I'm sure Your inner peace has just evaporated. But if being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ is vital, I promise you, peace is your portion, regardless of the times in which we live. Now, after the introduction, Paul next in the rest of chapter 1 introduces the topics that he's going to deal with in the rest of the letter. But he does it by giving his reasons for being so thankful for them. 
And he is. Timothy has come to Paul while Paul was in Corinth and reported how the Thessalonian Christians were doing. They're doing remarkably well, and Paul wants the church to know how thankful he is. This has been nothing short of the work of God. And that's what we're going to look at today. Paul's reasons for thankfulness that are found in verses 2 to 5. So let's examine those four verses now. Paul says he has two reasons to be thankful. The first reason is their faith, their hope, and their love. And you might remember that when Paul wrote the Corinthian church, that is, in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous love chapter, well, he told that church that although spiritual gifts were passing away, yet there are three things, he said, that remain, or three things that endure for all eternity. He said they're faith, hope, and love. These are enduring things. You know, your house, well, your car, your bank account your health, your your standing in the community. I mean, those things are the temporal things that will soon pass away. You're going to lose those things anyway, so don't weep too much when they're gone. But there are three things, faith, hope, and love. Well, says Paul, Timothy tells me, you've got those things in spades, and I'm so very thankful for what I'm hearing about you. And let me give a contemporary application. Let's say all your money is all but gone. Did you think even for a moment that your money was enduring? Or let's say your health is gone. Did you think that was enduring? Well, of course not. And and since that's so, you ought to value what is enduring. You ought to place your hope on that. And you ought to recognize that which was never yours to keep and not to hold it so tightly. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, watch this now, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There, the three enduring things. Paul is thanking God for the most precious commodity that anyone in this world can possess because it's enduring. We need some time, don't you think, to praise those laudable commodities and to not hold too tight to those things that are passing away. Last month, Back to the Bible Canada wrapped up another fiscal year. Every year, our gratitude and appreciation are renewed by the generosity you shower upon us. Your financial gifts of any amount, your prayers, your support, they do so much to sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry. Each of you are stakeholders in the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, and it's a privilege to partner with you. The ministry is now diving in head first to another year of faithful, expositional Bible teaching by Dr. John Newfeld, and so many other ministry opportunities that God has placed before us. We can't wait to see what God unfolds. May I express our deep gratitude for all you do. If you'd like more information about Back to the Bible Canada, or its associated ministries, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When we read 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-3, we saw that, that Paul mentioned that he's thankful for their faith, their hope, and their love. But would you notice that whereas in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, where where Paul says, these things remain, faith, hope, and love, 
in that passage, he leaves love to the very end, saying that it is love that is the greatest of the three. But here in our passage in 1 Thessalonians, the order is different. He mentions first faith, then he mentions love, and then hope is at the last. And just like in 1 Corinthians, when Paul puts those three virtues together, he leaves the last to the one that he wants to emphasize. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul thinks that hope and not love is supreme? Well, no. Rather, Paul wants to emphasize something very important about hope. So why does he end with hope? That's because hope is that virtue that allows us to endure the present crisis. Look, if you fall apart in panic or if in a crisis you look after yourself alone and don't act like you're your brother's keeper, or if you fall into despair and become distraught beyond remedy, you demonstrate your profound lack of hope. But what if there are promises of God that tell you with assurance that your best days, your very best days, are not behind you? They are definitely ahead of you. Once that assurance settles into your heart, it really is profound how that attitude changes the way in which you react to crisis. So let's back up for a moment to begin at the beginning of the passage. Paul has mentioned that he, Silas, and Timothy are constantly, or in an ongoing fashion, giving thanks for the Thessalonian church. So you have to imagine the three men going over what Timothy has reported, and consequently, the three are doing two things. First, they're constantly giving thanks for the amazing miracle of the Thessalonian church. And then second, they're constantly praying for them. They're asking God to bless them. And as they're thanking and beseeching, they're also remembering. Notice here that Paul doesn't just say, I remember your faith, hope, and love. Rather, he says, I remember a certain kind of faith and love and hope that you had. He mentions their work of faith, he says. I don't know about you, but does that sound like a strange way of saying it? See, because typically when we think about faith, we think of it as the opposite of works. And works is the idea that when I do enough things for God, then God owes me something. And that's the opposite of both grace and of faith. Faith is the idea that I'm trusting God to do something for me, something I haven't earned, to forgive my sins, to give me a heart that loves him. That kind of a thing. Not works, just trusting, waiting for him to act. So in order to understand what Paul is saying here, let's think of something that he said that sounds quite similar in Romans 1 verse 5. There, speaking of Jesus, Paul says in Romans 1 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So you see, Paul never believed that we are saved by works, He always believed we were saved by faith. However, genuine faith always produces or results in either obedience or works, which he calls the works of obedience. Now, when Paul says, I'm reminded of your work of faith, I have no doubt he's probably referring to something that Timothy reported back to him. Perhaps Timothy has been telling Paul that in spite of persecution, the church was not intimidated. Indeed, they are openly sharing their faith and doing good works. And Paul says, wow, that's the work of faith. And that's why he then adds, your labor of love. See, just like faith, love can't just exist without a a result. And perhaps the Thessalonian church has been caring for the poor in the city, or perhaps they've acted in a way that brought caring to those who were even their enemies. 
Maybe they even found some who had been a part of the mob that happened in that city and had shown genuine forgiveness and caring for them. But whatever it was, the love that flowed from these believers was a delightful labor before God. See, I could give countless examples of both faith and love at work. We believe that God supplies all our needs, and so from that kind of faith, we can be generous, can't we? We believe that the Holy Spirit is convicting hearts so that from faith, we confidently share the gospel. We believe that all who die in Christ will rise with Jesus, and so we need not fear when death is stalking the land. There are innumerable examples of faith and love at work. And says Paul, we notice how deeply you have come to believe by the works you are doing in Thessalonica. But all of this is leading Paul to a conclusion. He gives thanks for their steadfastness of hope. And the word translated as steadfastness, well, that's the Greek word hapemone, a word that I personally can never forget. And, well, that's because of what happened my first day of Greek class when I was in seminary. All of us were concerned about that class. We had all heard the saying, it's all Greek to me. And so most of us thought this class was going to be very difficult. So we assembled and our Greek prof entered the room. He was at Dr. Green. And I'll never forget, he walked over to the whiteboard and he wrote, Hupamone, all in Greek letters. And then he said, if you learn this word, I promise you, Greek's going to be easy. And then he explained that it meant perseverance. And we all groaned. But then he went on to explain. Greek, he said, requires that you set time aside each day. And if you do it each day and persevere in daily exercises, never allowing any day to go by without doing your homework for that day, I promise you this class is going to be a breeze. And amazingly, it was. And that's the word, either translated as steadfastness or perseverance or even endurance. And says Paul, this is an endurance of hope. Hope gives you the ability to hang in there no matter how distressing your situation in Thessalonica becomes. You'll remember these believers had pressure to give up on the faith, but their hope created a spirit in them that would never give up. Yeah, dear brothers and sisters, if we have hope, we can get through anything, anything from persecution to wars to plagues to pandemics to financial crises, anything, if you remind yourself daily of what Christ has done for you. Now, says Paul, that's the reason we thank God for you. We see the outworking of your faith, your love, and your hope. Then he gives the second reason for thanksgiving, and that's in verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. See, in essence, what Paul says here is he's thankful because he has seen evidence that the Thessalonian church is made up of individuals who have been chosen by God. That Greek word can also be translated as the elect of God. He wants to say that he knows that they're the real deal. God has chosen them. They are God's own because Paul said it in Ephesians that God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, none of us, not even Paul, knows much about the eternal election of God. Paul wasn't there when God made these people his own. It happened before the beginning of time. But here's a very interesting thing, says Paul. Yet I know that God has chosen you. And with that, he has three reasons for being confident that these are the elect of God. First, because when the gospel came, it came not only in words, but in power. 
Now, are there many that think that's a reference to the miracles that Paul did? And maybe. But I think it's just as likely that Paul has in mind the power of God that fundamentally changes a human life from being a lover of self to being a lover of God. That's the power I saw when the gospel came to you. And second, Paul has noticed how the Holy Spirit has come upon these believers. The Holy Spirit now lives in them, and he sees evidence of it. And third, he has also noticed a deep inner conviction, that amazing commodity where you don't even have to encourage someone to stand firm in the Lord anymore because they have all the zeal that flows from within them. They want to do it. All of that is why believers persevere in hope. They belong to the elect of God. Their hearts are ablaze for Jesus, and they're quite prepared to go through the toughest of times, and they will never, 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 never give up. The explanation for our perseverance is not in the fact that we are tough or optimists or that we are self-disciplined. The explanation for our perseverance in toughest times lies in this. God has chosen us, he has given us the Holy Spirit, and he will never take his eyes off of us. That's what keeps us steadfast in very difficult times. Let's rejoice, God has not forgotten us. Thanks so much, John. You know, faith, hope, and love, I think everyone would say these are good things. But is it possible that the Bible describes an enduring faith, hope, and love that might be defined differently? Yeah, I think that's, well, that's that's insightful because um, obviously the way in which the Bible defines love is so very much different than the way, you know, the culture that we live in today defines love. But let me, let me concentrate specifically on the matter of hope because, you know, that seems to be the highlight in this passage, at least the way in which Paul writes it. And I think that, that if we only have hope in things that look hopeful to us, so, you know, we, we see things that, you know, I think they could work out well. We see all the seeds of seeing how it, you know, how it could work out well and, you know, we're kind of glass half full kind of people, that idea. If that's the hope that we're thinking about, it's definitely not the biblical kind of hope. Biblical hope is premised on this. There is no other hope outside of the fact that God has promised. So looking at the darkness of our own situation and circumstances, we say, yet I will not give in to despair because God promised something different and therefore I have hope. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Companions can be defined as people who band together for a common cause. Their combined resources accomplish together what they couldn't on their own. Well, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the clear, reliable teaching of God's Word. But we understand this great calling is not a solo effort. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is introducing its new monthly partnership program called Companions for the Gospel. Companions for the Gospel consists of individuals across Canada who choose to pray and support ongoing Bible teaching in the form of a consistent monthly gift. The result? Lives transformed. To find out more about joining Companions of the Gospel monthly partnership, its impact, and the exclusive benefits it offers, or to offer a gift today, just call us at 1-800-799-9663. 
662-4625 or visit backtothebible.ca.